Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 12th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. 3,800 people tested positive for COVID yesterday. The number of people in hospital increased by 20% in the course of the last week to 551. 97 of those people are in ICU and a further 250 people in hospital are receiving help in order to breathe. The youngest fatality was recorded with the death of a 14-year-old child with COVID. The pressure on the health service is compounded by sick leave. 4,400 staff are currently on leave. We can't blame this on any one sector, uh, but clearly hospitality reopening has had a part to play in that. Um, We also can't ignore the the mask-wearing requirements are very lax in nightclubs and People are exempt if they're dancing, but we all know that's that's what you do in a nightclub. But it's one thing if it's happening when everyone is fully vaccinated, Minister, but we know that some premises are not asking for COVID vaccine passes and we know that others, people are using passes that don't belong to them. NAFID wants us to work from home where possible. The Health Protection Surveillance Centre says visitors should only be allowed into nursing homes if they have COVID certs and government was asked in the doll why about a third of businesses in hospitality don't ask for COVID passes when they are obliged to. What are you going to do about non-compliance? Have you made particular recommendations? The Minister for the Arts, Catherine Murphy, responded to Sinn Féin's Imelda Munster saying the HSA has inspected hundreds of premises and... Overall compliance was generally found to be good. The Minister says most businesses are responsible. There is leadership being shown from the industry um, on this and they realise the real risk that everyone needs to, to, to be on board in this in order to keep these their livelihoods safe, to keep business reopen and to protect public health. And if uh, they don't comply, the Minister said, there are consequences. Comply, well, it's set out there, it could be fines, but ultimately there is that, that threat of, of closure. But if they aren't being inspected, Imelda Muster wanted to know how people can go about reporting them. Would you support the call for the helpline whereby members of the public who don't feel safe in an environment where they see that COVID passes aren't being checked or 
um, other health guidelines are not being adhered to. Minister Murphy says the existing method for reporting should be improved. They may communicate this uh, via the HSE uh, live helpline on 1800 700 700, but it, it should be noticed that anyone, anyone doing so would currently have to press uh, number three, which is the other issues uh, category. So I, I think it may be useful to, to tailor the helpline to allow members of, of the public to report specific instance in a, a more targeted um, manner. The Minister speaking in the Dáil yesterday and uh, apologies to Catherine Martin uh, for uh, calling her Murphy earlier on. Uh, as I say, the Minister was responding to Imelda Munster of uh, Sinn Féin yesterday. Let's speak to Anthony Staines, who's Professor of Health Systems in the School of Nursing in DCU and spokesperson for ISAG, the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group. Good morning to you, Anthony. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, This is a very serious surge, obviously, a very serious fourth wave. Need it be as bad as it is? No, I think it's happening as it is because of choices we've made, uh, our choices the government have made, and specifically what they haven't done they, they want to reopen, and I absolutely get that. I don't think anyone wants to see the lockdowns we've had continuing. Uh, I don't think the lockdowns we've had have been terribly effective. They have been of some value. But, you know, as WHO told us in March of 2020, uh, lockdowns are not a good long-term control measure. You know, you use a lockdown to buy you time to bring an epidemic under immediate control, and then you do other stuff to keep it down. And we've never really done the other stuff. So we've we've opened up, but the advice that has been given to the hospitality sector about basic things like ventilation, air filtration and so on is confusing and compares unfavourably the advice that's been given in some other countries. We have a situation in our schools where probably a substantial part of the drive for this this wave has happened is from schools. Um, there is no adequate strategies put in place to reduce risk in schools. So we're saying to children in primary school, don't wear masks. We're saying to all schools, well, we'll we'll give you a couple of carbon dioxide measuring devices, but if the devices show that your ventilation is very poor, well, come back to us and we'll talk about it. In other countries, there's a clear funded mechanism for getting, again, small-scale air filters for uh, for schools. Mm. These are portable things about the size of a kitchen chair. We we know the problem with COVID passports. I think you know, Minister Martin articulated it very well. There There is a problem. And it's down to elements, and, and only elements, not everybody, but it's down to elements within the hospitality industry. Um and who are who are not doing what they had, what their industry had signed up to, mm. and they're putting everyone at risk from that. And the, the last piece, I mean, we, we've always said there's three pieces to this. One is to prevent the disease spreading in the first place, which is primarily ventilation, masks, social distancing, reducing crowding. Then there's vaccination, which is the cornerstone of control. And our vaccination program has been brilliant. And HSE deserves immense credit for what's been done. And the the third bit, which you've been very, very weak on from the start, is control. And this is the basic ordinary stuff that we do for many other infectious disease outbreaks in public health all the time. If there's an outbreak, you find out where does it come from? 
you find out who have the infected people been in contact with, so to whom may they have spread disease, and you test and isolate those people. And what you're doing is you're you're breaking the chain of infection, because the way this works mm-hmm. is you know I get infected by you, mm. uh, I infect some other people, they go on to infect some other people, and unless we break those chains, which is not easy to do for this virus. Uh, we we get into trouble. Our what's been our problem is we have not made a serious effort to reduce the chains of infection, and we know they're very difficult to stop completely. But we also know you can do a great deal to reduce it. So while we wait for vaccination to kick in fully, which is going to take some time, we're not minimising the damage. A lot of people are getting sick. And it's a nasty illness. A proportion of those, maybe one in ten, will have long-term health effects, and we don't know what long-term means. Mm. You know, is it six months? Is it a year? Is it three years? We just don't know. Mm. And some will die. And you've heard of that that unfortunate and tragic case of a 14-year-old child who died. Mm. That's dreadful. Yeah. And that 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 was a that was in a preventable death, and it should not have happened. And I would be very you know, I'd be very yeah. direct about that. Yeah, nobody and no doubt that, my yeah. clinical colleagues yeah. did everything they could mm. to prevent it. Mm. But the situation should never have arisen. Mm. And that's horrific uh, to think. It's horrific to think of any death uh, mm. being preventable, uh, but particularly of a, a young child, no doubt. Mm. Uh, are, are we trying to achieve herd immunity, do you think? Uh, yeah, I think we probably are. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, hmm. let this run loose amongst the ch- amongst children so they all get immune. And there is a price to pay for that, uh, but maybe it's a, is, that's the gamble. Is, is the price worth paying? It doesn't work. That's hmm. the problem. No. You know, we, we know, actually, because it's been extensively studied, the immunity, unlike other disease, unlike some diseases, immunity from infection with COVID-19 gives you less protection than immunity from vaccination. Like that's just, you know, mm. that's biology. But if you're, if you're, if, could do about that. If you're vaccinated and you get COVID, you're pretty well protected, are you not? Probably, yeah. yeah. Uh, although I'd, I'd still be, would be inclined when, when boosters become available, I'd still be inclined to suggest a booster. But mm. certainly two doses of vaccine gives you pretty good protection. And is that why they're letting people go to nightclubs? Uh, because, I mean, you'd have to assume uh, whether it's nightclubs or gigs or the match last night, uh, when our people are gathering in big crowds and they're in close proximity, there's a, a good chance, given how virulent it is at the moment, that they'll uh, contract this uh, disease. Uh, but if they've been vaccinated, uh, maybe they'll build up uh, enough immunity that uh, eventually so many people will be in that position that the virus will no longer be a threat to us as a population. It may be, but it's an expensive way of achieving immunity. I'm not too worried about matches because they're predominantly outdoors. I'd be, you know, I, I think the everything we know about this virus says it spreads in crowded indoor spaces. So it spreads in places like school classrooms, like pubs, like nightclubs, like parties in houses. They're a major source of spread. Mm. And what, one of our problems in the beginning has been we haven't identified um, the routes of spread. We haven't collected the information to know where it's coming from. And that's really hampered everything we're doing 
with this virus since the beginning. It, it seems as though we've already got a, another problem in terms of communicating a clear message uh, to the public. Uh, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, was saying yesterday morning that he hadn't been advised or the government hadn't been advised yet uh, that people should work from home where possible. He knew the advice was on the way. The advice went to government last night and the subcommittee will meet next week. Uh, so you'd expect that they're not going to adopt that uh, advice and that will confuse people, those uh, who are employed people and those who are expected to go to work under circumstances that are, they're being told is bad for public health. Yeah, I mean, Mike Ryan said this again right at the beginning. He said, in dealing with, with pandemics, and he's a man with vast experience, I mean, phenomenal experience, far more than I would have. He says, the speed trumps everything else. So we, we know there's, there's good environmental reasons, there's good health reasons for working from home to the extent possible. We already know that. We've known that for years. What COVID has shown us is that for many people, not for everyone, but for many people, it's perfectly possible to work part-time or substantially full-time from home. Mm. So, you know, why not do it? Particularly now. Why do it? Why do it if you can go to the Christmas party tonight or out dancing tomorrow? Why do it? Why not do it? Because you don't have to commute. You don't emit mm. a large volume of carbon dioxide transporting yourself. Sure, but there is, a, a, conf- there is a, a confliction in that message, isn't it? It's okay to go out dancing in a nightclub, but work at home. The, me- the messaging has been appalling. Mm. Uh, w- one of Neffet's weaknesses from the beginning has been that there was a terrible lack of analytical ability. So they don't have anyone in Neffet who, under- who actually understands infectious disease epidemiology at a professional level. And they don't have anyone on NEFIT who understands how to do what's rather fancifully called quantitative risk assessment at a professional level. And this is where you sit down and you say, using the best information available to me, what is the risk of this particular type of occurrence? And if you do that, you get a much more coordinated pattern of advice to people. And you get advice which doesn't chop and change. Because, you know, the transmission of the disease, our knowledge of transmission does improve. Mm. But the transmission of the disease itself doesn't change very much. Okay. So we, we, we could have much more consistency in messaging if we went down that road. And but what would your message not do that. What would your message be to people now um, in terms of their behaviour? Uh, is it a question of being as careful as possible uh, to the extent that you'd impose a lockdown on yourself? Or what would you do? I, I'd say very, it's very simple. Get vaccinated. Wear a mask in anywhere there's other people around. Push your TD to get the government to do something effective about controlling case numbers. Because we're, uh, I'm talking to colleagues in the health service who are broken, as I thought, from another winter, like last winter. The health service is always really, really tough over winter. It's going to be horrendous this winter. And stay well. Okay. Thank you, Prof. Pleasure as always to talk to you. Thank you indeed. Uh, Professor Anthony Staines is a professor of health systems in uh, the School of Nursing in DCU and a spokesperson for the ISAG, the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group. 
Four and a half years on, seven million euro later, the Commission investigating the abuse and neglect of an intellectually disabled child has not concluded its work. The non-verbal girl, known as Grace, was subjected to abuse at the highest end of the scale. Yesterday, the Dáil debated two interim reports from the Farley Commission of Investigation. And I have to say that I'm shocked and appalled that what has happened today, or what is happening here today, is a further abuse of Grace and the 46 others. We are completely ignoring the fact that there are reports within the HSE that clearly outline what happened to Grace. What happened to Grace was brought to light by two whistleblowers. And the minute all of this happened, the two whistleblowers were targeted by the HSE, they were targeted in their employment in Widda, in, the, in, in Waterford, and they were put under horrendous stress. I read the reports from the whistleblowers. I discussed it with them. And I couldn't believe that this type of abuse could happen in our state. Abuse where a young woman was put into a home and was sexually abused. And that sexual abuse was reported by a HSE worker because he was concerned that she had objects put into her that would cause her a bowel problem for her future. And it did. This was abuse at the highest end of the scale on a highly vulnerable person, but nobody acted. It was reported to the Gardaí and nothing happened. They called to the house and inspected it, the HSE, and found that she lived there with three male um, uh, residents. There was people found under the stairs, locked in. There was children out in outhouses. There was men of the road, as you were calling them at that time, calling and leaving that house. And nothing was done. Nothing was done before a whistleblower came forward to report what was happening. And when the whistleblower went ahead against the wishes of the HSE and went to court to be appointed a ward of court and for her to be appointed committee. The HSE resisted this, resisted it. But she plugged ahead, she ploughed ahead and she was appointed. Thank God for that whistleblower, you might say, but she wasn't thanked for her bravery. Now, the other really disgusting thing about this case is that it continues today through the Department of Health and WIDA because the whistleblower lost her job because she went to TDs about the case. That is what she was told. And and strong as she was, she took the case to the High Court and they settled some sort of case, settled that case with some sort of, uh, I'm sure, financial uh, reward uh, on the steps of the court. So we're never going to know what happened. And I'm asking you, Minister, how much did your department pay or how much did WIDA pay in legal fees and in settlements to keep Grace's whistleblowers quiet? Is it a fact? Is it a fact that she had to sign a confidentiality agreement? Will we ever know what was said? 
The Farrelly Commission has not concluded its investigations. Four and a half years on, there are only two interim reports that cost €7 million to talk about at this stage. A final report is some way off. But we know enough in these reports to know that there was corruption, that there was criminality involved, and the guards or the state took no action whatsoever. And instead, when the committee of this person, Grace, decided that she was going to find out exactly what happened, she received reports like this, blanked out, all blanked out, all redacted. No sense can be made of some of the pages in it, except the commentary that Grace spent years in a daycare centre, attending daycare centre. She turned up, yes, she stripped off her clothes and presented lying on the floor in a sexual position. She was non-verbal. She was intellectual and physically challenged. And nobody reported it. How this went on for 20 years remains a mystery. Nobody thought fit to look at the bruises on her thighs, her legs, her breasts, all inflicted by hands of people, not, as it was said, by a fall on the bus. And nobody spoke up for her. Nobody tried to help her. And other children in that house were left at the end of the road to make their own way to school or elsewhere. No one asked where Grace was. It was said she has a cold. She's not well today. She won't be in. She hadn't seen the doctor for six years. And all during the time after the committee was appointed, the HSE continued to stonewall the efforts of the committee to get the information that was required, even on her medical information. John McGuinness, uh, Fianna Fáil TD, together with former Fine Gael TD, John DC first brought the abuse of grace to public attention. Today, McGuinness wants somebody to take responsibility. I believe that the depart that the doll here should insist on accountability. The Taoiseach and the Minister should be sitting down there listening to what went on to Grace and responded to him, not hiding behind legal advice, not hiding behind, or somebody can't be named. Someone abused Grace sexually and others in that house. Somebody abused her financially because they took the disability allowance and paid nothing to her. When the committee got two boxes of her belongings back, there was clothes in it that couldn't be associated with Grace. They were too big for her. There was thongs in the box, not hers. There was other underwear and other clothes in the box that were not hers. Some of the clothes were filthy. There was no photographs. There was no birthday cards. There was no Christmas cards. There was nothing, only two boxes. And when the HSE were asked, do you want to see the two boxes and what I've just received, they declined. And in the investigation by the committee, this person that blew the whistle, they never replied to some of the queries that she put to them. They ignored her. And they said that it was a godsend that we have such places to send these children to. What a disgusting way to treat 
that young woman and all of the other 46. Speaking under dull privilege, John McGuinness claimed that the abuse of Grace has been covered up. The state knew about this all along. Officials knew about it. The social welfare, the, the people in, in, uh, in, in the care of these people, they knew about it. They reported it. And they, they did the usual thing that the state would do. They employed people that were one time employed by the state, by the HSE, but were now in private practice to investigate. And the investigations were a complete and utter whitewash. Complete and utter whitewash. The detail of this report, it may be okay, it may look grand. It doesn't give any kind of description to the abuse that these 46 people suffered when they were in the care of the state. None. It is the first time in my 24 years here that listening to the two whistleblowers and reading the reports that had sickened me to the the pit of my stomach. I I can't believe it happened. And as said, he claimed it was covered up and intentionally covered up. When the officials came before the Public Accounts Committee, they told blatant lies about what they had done. And they should be called back in and they should be put through the ringer in relation to the misinformation that they gave this House. Politicians will be blamed for the wrongdoing. But there are individuals in the HSE that know what went on. They're criminals. They should be brought to court. They should be prosecuted. And we should not be afraid to chase them down. Fianna Fáil TD, John McGuinness speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, from the 1.5 target of COP26 to Ireland's climate action plan and how to power the country without coal, oil, or peat and result in net zero emissions. The answer according to Airgrid, in the Shaping Our Electricity Future plan. Let's hear a little bit more about this plan. Michael Mahon is uh, the Chief Infrastructure Officer with Airgrid. And a very good morning to you, Michael, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. It's a tall ask, I suppose, when you put it all together like that. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, it's it's, it's a big challenge, um, but we now have a plan. Um, we have a roadmap to try and achieve that the, the, the government's climate action plan target of 70% of our electricity coming from renewable sources by 2030, which will see us well on our way to ultimately achieve a net zero target uh, sometime after 2030. Okay. Um, So how will you produce electricity without coal, oil or peat? So effectively, Ireland's already um, operating at significant levels of renewable penetration. We have, last year, we achieved a record of 40% of our electricity came from renewable sources, averaged out over the years. So we need to go from 40 to 70% by 2030. We've carried out, in the last number of months, one of the most extensive consultations that any semi-state has carried out. And we've engaged with people across Ireland to gauge feedback of how we're actually going to do it and what do we need to do. So now we've got to the point where we've taken on board all the feedback from that consultation from the public, um, from, from businesses um, and from, from the industry and we've come up with a plan that has four key areas that we're going to focus on between now and 2030 how we're going to adapt the electrical infrastructure what we need to do to adapt the existing transmission system 
uh, how we're going to engage with the public to gain their consent to allow us to make those changes, how we're going to evolve the operation of the system, and how we're going to actually change the market to ensure that people are investing in the, these renewable projects to allow us to get to 70%, then 80%, mm. and ultimately net zero. Mm. And what renewables uh, will uh, be most used? Uh, I mean, you've ob- the obvious options, I suppose, between the wind, the sun, and the sea. Uh, exactly. So, like, if you look at Ireland and the, the record of, of 40, 40, actually 43% of our electricity coming from renewable sources, a lot of that has come from onshore wind. Um, when we've looked at the, the roadmap, we've identified that a lot more um, of the additional renewables we need now will come from offshore. So we're targeting 5 gigawatts of offshore wind connected to the system by 2030. We're looking at an additional 1.3 gigawatts of onshore wind and a gigawatt of solar. But one of the other key things that we identified through the consultation is people and communities wanted to do things themselves. So we're recognising the need for microgeneration and we've allowed for up to 500 megawatts of microgeneration so you can put a solar panel on your roof and you can contribute to that target as well. The other thing we've done as part of the consultation is we've looked also at where, when the situation where we don't have the renewables, so when we have a low wind day and we don't have a lot of sun, we need to have a very, uh, we need to have a backup, and that backup we've targeted is going to be uh, 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 low carbon gas uh, generation, and we're also trying to factor that into our plans between Hi- twenty thirty as well. Hydrogen. So we're looking at using natural gas and mm. the, the the potential that all of these natural gas plants, the generation plants, could be adapted to use hydrogen if hydrogen becomes an economic. Um, um, so if it becomes economic to, to generate hydrogen from mm. from renewables to effectively to store it and, and then to use it when we don't have additional wind on enough wind on. Well, if we can generate hydrogen, it, uh, it would be possible uh, to heat homes with existing gas boilers. Is there a question mark over government policy uh, to uh, ban uh, gas boilers uh, being installed in new builds? So the, the the government are looking at targets as well as as well as the electricity uh, uh, sector. Yeah, and they're also looking across kind of the, the, the kind of the um, um, all the different forms of carbon generation, and they are looking at using, for example, electrification of heat. So we can use a heat pump on our house mm. to um, which might cost you fifteen thousand euro, and you uh, may be saying, "Well, why can't I use my gas boiler?" So uh, if you it will cost money to install a heat pump mm. and it will cost money to insulate our house. But if you look at that over a 10 or 15, 20 year period, the payback okay. um, uh, is it, it, going to be pretty good. You're obviously not going to get into that issue of government policy on gas boilers uh, being prohibited in new bills. Uh, you're hoping that when the electricity is generated through the renewables uh, that you'll be able to upgrade the infrastructure that delivers uh, that electricity to people's homes and businesses uh, and so on. Uh, And our grid is now saying that it'll avoid the use of pylons where possible. Why is that the case? So we're we're committed to looking at all different forms of technology and as we've been evolving um, and, and developing the grid over the last number of years, we do look at what opportunities are there to to, to utilise new technology where we can upgrade existing lines, where we can adapt, add technology to allow us to send more power through the existing lines, um, but also then 
looking at using new overhead infrastructure and new underground cable infrastructure. And, and Michael, I know we, we've talked in the past, for example, in terms of mm. Kildare Mead. Mm. And Kildare Mead's a project where we developed and we identified that there were overhead line solutions and underground cable solutions. And through the consultation that we went through last year, we identified that the preferred alternative was to progress with an underground cable solution. And we did have that opportunity and we are currently actually finishing a consultation uh, across uh, an, an area into there and need to, to gain people's feedback as to what actually route we're going to utilise for the underground cable between Dunstan and Woodland. All right. Uh, obviously, uh, then there's the controversy uh, about uh, the north-south interconnector, which we always end up talking about, uh, I suppose, Michael. Uh, and okay. I, I think you'll agree for understandable reasons, because people are genuinely uh, upset about it and have been for some time. Uh, and would look on, it, look on it a little bit like COVID, where we're all supposed to be in it together. But then they see the Kildare Mead line and they end up wondering uh, if it's a little bit like Animal Farm. And some of us are... Uh, in this uh, together more than others are? M- Michael, all, all of the um, different options have been looked at for North-South as they have for Kildare Mead, as they have been for North Connacht. The only viable um, solution for for a connection between the substation in, in Mead and the substation in, in Turleen in, in, in Northern Ireland was an was a was was the overhead line technology and the underground cable technology wasn't suitable over that distance. And I, I know through our previous discussions on this point, we tried to explain that, that each project has to be looked at as for its own uh, technical kind of challenges. And we have technical challenges, so there isn't an underground cable solution that's appropriate for the North South project. There is for the um, there is for the Kildare Mead project and we will continue that because we're going to need to develop new infrastructure across Ireland over the next number of years. We've identified new circuits and we will go through and study and see what what types of technology can be deployed and then we will go like we have done and actually have a public consultation to gain people's feedback as to what's, what's appropriate. Okay, Michael, we'll leave there for the moment. But thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme today. Michael Mann is Chief Infrastructure Officer with Airgrid. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Peter in touch saying he thinks it's only right that people are asked for vaccine service if they want to go into nursing homes. We need to protect the elderly. There have been far too many deaths from COVID in nursing homes and everything must be done to keep residents safe. Thanks for that, Peter. Uh, another call to us uh, about COVID again. Helen in Dundalk has been in touch and uh, she says that the government are blaming anything and everything on the current surge but themselves. Helen thinks we should be in lockdown and she says it's all about the money at this stage. They don't realise the stress that this is putting on elderly people. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, Deirdre and Kells uh, calling about uh, the death of a 14-year-old saying her heart goes out to the poor child and uh, their family. Where is all of this going to end? We need to have vaccine certs for everything. Shops, hairdressers, beauty salons, gyms everything because we don't know who we are mixing with it's very worrying 
that the cases are rising, says Deirdre. Thank you as well for your call to the programme this morning and indeed everybody who has been in touch with us. Now, we're looking to track down a, a woman who probably lives near Beaumont Hospital, a woman who was walking her dog, at least, near Beaumont Hospital on the 31st of August and came across some medical files. On those medical files, this woman found a telephone number and she called that number. Uh, She uh, was calling uh, the phone of Anne Dunn's husband, whether she knew that at the time, but she spoke to a man who was Anne's husband. Uh, And the husband told her at the time, um, well, uh, maybe you could put the files in the bin. Thanks very much. Anne Dunn died the following day. Now, it is a, a very sad story, but if you are the woman or you know the woman who was walking her dog and came across medical files in and around Beaumont Hospital on the 31st of August, the family would love to hear from you. Cindy Cunningham is Anne Dunn's sister, and she's been telling me a little bit more about what happened. Anne was at, on her deathbed. We were all in the hospital at, in her room. And I thank God for that, at least we were laid in. Her husband received, got a phone call. He went out of the room to answer the phone. And when he came back in, he went, oh, my God, he says, you're not going to believe this, he says. A woman, a walking her dog at the back of the Beaumont Hospital, had, she was just walking and she seen these papers on the ground. She picked them up. She rang, well, obviously she rang her husband and uh, she says, um, I'm after finding a file. And it was my sister, Anne's file. So um, he wasn't thinking straight. He just says, um, to bin it. And what kind, so, of a, what kind of a file was it? It was her medical file. Oh, right. A medical file. From the hospital? From the Bowman Hospital. Right. And where did she find it, just lying on the street? She found it at the back. She said she was walking her dog at the back of the Bowman Hospital. Mm. So... <sighs> Anne's husband hung up uh, and then yes. Anne passed away. He came back into the room. We were absolutely devastated. The fact that our beautiful sister was lying on her deathbed and to think that a woman out walking her dog could actually find my sister, her sister's file. I'm speaking for her sisters, her husband and her son. And to come in and tell us that on her deathbed. Like, the devastation... Never mind the fact that our sister was lying, dying in the bed. It's the yeah. fact, the hurt, the disgust, the devastation that this lady could ring and tell us that they were after something else. Okay, and you, you, you lost Anne since? Anne died the following day, yes. She okay. was 57 years of age. She was buried in Alberta. And um, you thought about things afterwards and then remember the call oh. and then thought, how did that happen and why did that happen? And you got on to the hospital. What did the hospital have to say to you? Well, uh, I myself um, decided then that I'd put a complaint in. So I was dealing with a lady in data breach and she said she'd investigated for me. So her husband, in the meantime, had been talking to a bereavement counsellor and he was just telling her the story. He just said, look, after Anne had passed, it was a week or so after she had passed. She had passed, and she was telling the, he was telling the bereavement counsellor about the file. And she says, "Well, do you know what?" She says, "I'll see if I can find out for you." Mm. A fair play to what she did. So she rang the medical records in the Bowman, and she got talking to a lady in medical records. 
and uh, the lady turned around and she says, yes, the file had been handed in. She says um, uh, that they were going to send her husband a written apology. We're still waiting on that apology. Right. But in the meantime, I had written myself to, I put a complaint in with the data breach in the moment. And they got back to me there two weeks ago. Only I emailed them to find out where they were with the investigation. And she's of the understanding now that this file was never lost, it was never found, that the bereavement counsellor uh, had, it was a misunderstanding in the conversation that she had with the lady in medical records. Right. So they're two very, very different stories. They are two very different stories. So, um... Hmm. But you, 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 you've no doubt that this happened because no you were there when Anne's husband took the call, he spoke yes. to the woman, uh, yes. and he's not making it up, quite obviously. No, and nobody all, at this all time. of yeah. my sisters were there and her son. So, yeah. yes, absolutely no. Like, even at that, Michael, why would they even acknowledge or say that they were sending out an apology? Mm. You know, and now they're backtracking. Right. So that's why you're calling us now. This is why I'm calling. Uh, see, if this lady, maybe she is listening today, maybe she might have said it to somebody. Um, just if she could just maybe ring your show, get in contact with my details that you can give, and maybe ring me and... Just so we'll know. Mm. And just, know. J- just give us the date, if you would. The date, it was 31st of August, okay. 2021. Around, I'm not sure of the time because we were absolutely devastated. Yeah. Um, between two and four, I'm saying. And they even had suggested, would you believe, that mm. in medical records, when the bereavement counsellor was speaking, uh, that Anne maybe might have lost the file herself. Right. And was lying on her deathbed that Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and if uh, somebody is listening to us uh, and they are the person that found it or they know who found it, uh, they don't need to come on the radio just to mention that. They don't need to do anything. You you would just like to speak to them privately? I would like to speak to them privately and then I can take it from there and let the hospital know that, no, we're not lying. This did happen. And that's the, you know... Yeah. That's the way I feel. That's the way we all feel. I'm speaking for her husband, her son, her brothers and sisters. Mm. Like we are absolutely devastated. Well, if we do hear from anybody, obviously we'll pass them yes. on their details to you, Cindy. Yes, um, it's, that would be great. It's very raw for you still after it is. such very, a, very a recent hard. bereavement of your sister. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's just the way, Michael, that, you know, why was, how did the file get out and be lost in the first place? Yeah. This is happening so many times, I'm sure. And mm. like me, like this, people are probably saying, oh, I couldn't be bothered with this. It's too much hassle. I felt the same way myself because I'm getting no answers. You know, and I know, like, when my sister passed, um, one of the main nurses in Lourdes Hospital had said to us, tell your truth, she says, there's an awful lot of people, she says, that will do nothing. Mm. And that's how it, they're getting away with it. So, yeah, well, I mean, if it was the medical file, it's quite file, it's quite yeah. probable that it, it said Anne was suffering from a, a terminal illness, and uh, anybody Absolutely. anybody could have picked that up, uh, and yes. they may have not known uh, the situation, and it may have come as a, a terrible way for them to discover what the situation is, apart from the privacy and uh, the breach of confidentiality yeah. and all of that stuff. Uh, yeah, which, and uh, why? Yeah, why was the file? How did that file 
be found by a random woman walking her dog? Why would she have rang her husband on that Tuesday when Anne was at the end of her life journey? The 31st only of August. The 31st of August. She rang only because she found the file. Okay. So they're, it's the, uh, they're backtracking is the way I feel in the moment and we just want answers. Okay, well, if anybody so does make contact, uh, we'll be glad to, to give them yeah. your details. Okay, and that would be absolutely brilliant. Okay, Cindy, look, thanks for calling us. That's great, Michael, so yeah, I appreciate okay. it and thank you very much. That's Cindy Cunningham. It's a very sad story and uh, obviously our sympathies and I'm sure yours uh, too, Cindy, and uh, the family. But uh, what we're hoping to achieve today is to track down that woman. Are you that woman, that random woman, as Cindy uh, put it, uh, who picked up her sister's medical file outside of Beaumont Hospital on the 31st of August when you were out walking your dog? Or do you know of a woman who was out walking her dog, probably walks her dog regularly around the hospital, but on the 31st of August and came across a medical file. Uh, If it is you, uh, can you make contact with us here? Or if you know who it is, can you ask them to make contact with us here so that we can pass on the number to Cindy because she just wants to talk to you privately. No big fuss, no publicity, nothing like that. uh, Just so that uh, she can go to the HSE and say, no, this actually did happen uh, because uh, she's obviously finding it hard uh, to win that argument and has uh, turned to us uh, for some assistance uh, in trying uh, to convince the HSE that this is what happened. It seems peculiar, but that's the situation. Uh, And by the way, we did ask the HSE for a statement in relation to that. Uh, We haven't heard back, uh, I don't think, at this stage. Um, Now, uh, another text uh, to us here from Mary and Trim, who says, Michael, can we have a break from COVID, please? It's not going away. A friend of mine is very sick with COVID. She's done everything by the book. And I'm strongly not thinking, I'm strongly thinking about not getting the booster. Please, God, we uh, will get back to normal news uh, at some stage, like listening to councillors waffling on, says Mary and Trim. Thanks, Mary and Trim. I think that's probably why we are talking about it, because people are saying to themselves, well, what's the point in getting the booster if you're going to get COVID? Uh, And it's to try and reinforce the message. Uh, If you're vaccinated, uh, there's less chance of very serious illness or death, uh, or that even if you get ill, that you won't be as ill as you would have been otherwise. Or if you get COVID, that you may not even be ill. And that certainly seems to be the case with the booster. And the evidence is there with the boosters uh, for the over 80s. The numbers are through the roof across all age groups. But this week we heard from Neffet that the over 80s uh, have seen a dramatic reduction in the number of people who are getting COVID. And that is simply because that cohort, that age group, has got the boosters. So if you're entitled to a booster, it's a great opportunity for you to avoid sickness, very severe sickness, hospitalisation or death. Uh, And it's very strongly advised that you do get the vaccine and the booster vaccine. Uh, Somebody else uh, in touch with us, uh, this is Valerie in Drogheda, says the HSE should have a rapid response team that targets areas of high incidence of covid Drogheda is one of the largest towns in Ireland with no COVID test centre or vaccine centre. And if nursing homes are requesting COVID certs to see a loved one and uh, the staff, including agency staff, uh, are going to be working there, what's the point? They shouldn't be working there until they're vaccinated, says Valerie in Drogheda.
Thank you indeed for your message to the programme as well today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Whatever else uh, about uh, Brexit or the withdrawal agreement or Article 16, uh, you'd imagine at this stage uh, that Maris Sefcovic and David Frost are sick of the sight of each other. The European Commission Vice President and uh, the British Government's Chief Negotiator on Brexit are meeting again in London today. The stakes are high, though, having said all of that, despite the conversation being the same old conversation over and over again. Let's speak uh, to the Minister for European Affairs, uh, Fianna Fáil TD for me, East Thomas Byrne. Good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, it's taking a, a long time to get through all of uh, these talks, uh, but uh, there is some hope, is there, that the British are going to climb down off their high horse? Look, we're not asking anybody to climb down off their high horse, Michael. What we're looking for really is just a reasonable compromise on this. Uh, and what the European Union has done is it has come and listened to what people have said in Northern Ireland, come with a lot of proposals to ease the burden on business and, and people in Northern Ireland. That's been really well received in the North. And we're hoping then that the British can, can see their way to compromising on their side as well. Uh, so that we can all begin again to speak in one voice with regard to Northern Ireland. I know I keep saying this, but it's so important that both governments, Irish government, uh, British government, British government, the EU, they were all speaking in one voice in Northern Ireland. That gives leadership direction in Northern Ireland. It gives economic certainty. It allows economic growth and will, I think, help uh, with social stability as well in Northern Ireland. Okay, where's the sticking point? Is is it the European Court of Justice and just the European Court of Justice and its role in how it will oversee the implementation of the withdrawal agreement? I, I don't think that's the only sticking point as such. I mean, that's that's one kind of high-profile issue uh, that is a difficult one uh, for both sides to, 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 to meet on. Um, there are other issues. I mean, the range of issues that the European Union have um, put forward in terms of the easements that they've offered. I mean, if, like if the, if the British had said they were fine, we wouldn't mm. be in this uh, position. I think they're still not happy with them, despite the fact that they do go a long, long way to easing the burden on business and people in Northern Ireland. So, so look, we are looking for movement uh, from Britain. Um, I think I think that should happen. That can happen. And, and and in truth, that will settle things in Northern Ireland. It will give you know certainty, mm. um, and will will certainly ease any kind of trade friction issues that business have raised with us. What else can Europe do? Uh, I, I mean, leaving the European Court of Justice aside, uh, Europe has bent over backwards for the British, has it not? Absolutely, and as Ursula von der Leyen said, they've gone the extra mile. And what we would see is that the latest EU demands, say, on the, on the Court of Justice, I mean, that goes beyond kind of trade friction or difficulties that business are having on the border mm. um, or, or trade between, between Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, there's not much more. I mean, I think, I think the European Union has, you know, the, the, what they've proposed has been welcomed by business. I mean, surely that really says it all. I mean, that's, that's what we're all here to, is to be in solutions mode, uh, to solve problems. And I think the problem is when you set unrealistic expectations um, that can't be delivered then, that that then contributes to political instability uh, in Northern Ireland and damages the relations between Britain and Ireland. And we really, really need to be strengthening them, uh, working together on one page to support peace uh, and stability. Right. Uh, can the British, or has uh, the British uh, the possibility of putting the frighteners on Europe uh, about um, what would happen if the whole thing fell apart to such an extent that Europe will cave in on the European Court of Justice? No, I don't think uh, I don't think the capabilities there to put the frighteners on Europe. I think um, European Union is has really stood very firm, 
very solidly, completely united on this issue uh, over the last few years. I think that has very much been to the European Union's strength. Uh, and I want to thank our colleagues who continually ask me about the Northern Ireland situation. I'll be talking to some of them today and, to, and on Monday who are still interested, engaged, uh, and asking for our view on the situation uh, before they come to, to views themselves. So, so, so that engagement with the European Union is really, really helpful. It's positive. We also have the engagement from the United States as well. Mr. Coveney has been on uh, at the highest level in, 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 in America. They're showing really strong interest in this. And I have to say, if America, the European Union, the Irish government, it has to be said as well, a majority of the people in Northern Ireland support the protocol, I'd be asking the British government just to come on board uh, and to work with us for something that almost everybody wants and to ease concerns of unionists. I mean, to be fair, unionists have raised concerns, mm. particularly around trade between... On, now, it's only one-way trade, Britain to Northern Ireland. There are no barriers whatsoever, Northern Ireland to Britain. Mm. Um, and we have worked to, to ease those barriers as best we can. Um, we need to give, I suppose, security to unionists as well, that the Good Friday Agreement is protected, and the Good Friday Agreement protects their identity and their place in the United Kingdom, if that's what a majority of people in Northern Ireland want. So it's important for us to send those signals out to unionists too. Um, and to show that business can prosper. Only this week there was a, a chemical company, Almac, has announced over a thousand jobs in Northern Ireland, uh, based in Craigavon. One of the advantages they have as a sorry, a pharmaceutical company is that they're in the best of both worlds. They're in the, the European Union single market. They're in the uh, the British uh, Customs Union as well. So they so they have an advantage there uh, for marketing drugs. And that's really, really important just because of the protocol. Mm. Uh, so we've got to see more of that, and I really am excited to see that. And, and they may not thank the British government uh, if all of this thing uh, falls uh, apart, but is that the negotiating tactic that the British is using, that it's playing hardball, if you like, and it's saying, um, take it or leave it, and we don't think you have the nerve to leave it? Well, I think, you know, I would discourage anybody from playing hardball in relation to Northern Ireland. I think... It's in everybody's interest to concentrate on practical improvements to what is basically all we're talking about here is an administration burden that traders face. That's really what it is. It's if you're trading goods across the Irish Sea from Northern Ireland, there has been an added administrative burden, not because of the protocol, but because of Brexit. Um, and we're trying to improve that and lessen that. So that's all we're talking about here. Mm, but there's fellas so getting on buses with guns. Um, there's yeah. kids burning Belfast. Uh, and you know that there is more to it than that, whether it, there's merit in the feelings that people are expressing. Uh, but there is uh, this sense among some unionists uh, that they're being looked on as being less British than the British themselves. Well, look, what I would say is that the people getting on buses and burning them probably have absolutely no idea what's in the protocol. But what they see is division between the British and Irish government. Um, what I would like to see is unity there because that then gives direction to say, look, this, this entity, Northern Ireland, is on a straight path, which is for economic progress, which is to get jobs for people in deprived areas, uh, which is to bring social progress as well, which is to make sure that the identities in Northern Ireland are protected by the Good Friday Agreement. That's all we're asking for. And if there's unity between the two governments, if there's direction given there, the parties, in my opinion, follow that. And the people on the, you know, the people on the ground, the small minority who are causing trouble, uh, follow that as, uh, uh, as well. But any alternative that now is, could happen if, if this didn't go well, it just gives greater uncertainty. It'll be greater friction, actually, for Northern Ireland business, because at the moment, OK, there is friction on the, uh, on, uh, on the, the RSC between Stranraer and Laurency. Um, we're trying to ease that. 
But if, say for example, British went the whole hog, there'd be friction then because Northern Ireland goods then destined for the single market of the European Union would be questioned. If they're going to France or if they're going to Italy or whatever, would be questioned. So they'd have even more burden. So that's that's not what we want. Um, and uh, Northern Ireland's place in the single market is guaranteed under the protocol, which is a, an agreement entered into between the British uh, government and the European Union. It's a huge benefit to Northern Ireland. I certainly don't want to see any further administrative burden uh, for for business uh, and goods uh, in Northern Ireland. Mm. Uh, do you think that there is going to be a resolution? Uh, the Taoiseach uh, seemed to be saying that yesterday that there's a, a dialing down in uh, the momentum towards uh, triggering Article 16 and uh, perhaps uh, that uh, some uh, meeting of minds will happen over the course of uh, this next uh, s- series of meetings. Well, obviously, we want resolution, and I was interested yesterday as well to note the comments of the Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, Rishi Sunak, and his comments certainly uh, were very, very reasonable and were the type of stuff almost I would have said myself. Um, and I think that that was, that was very, very welcome. Uh, and I certainly hope that that's getting through within the system uh, in the UK. Um, but there is, even if a decision is taken, right, let's go with this process, uh, or let's try really hard to find solutions to this, there's still a lot of work to do because, um, you know, Frost and Sethkiewicz are meeting today, uh, but there's also technical discussions going on all the time. And those technical discussions are slow and laborious and, you know, people want to check that every T is crossed and I is dotted. So that will take a bit of time as well. Um, but I think ultimately what will be a benefit to everybody if a signal was sent, actually now we're speaking off one page. Okay, Minister, we'll leave it there for the moment, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. That's the Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne. Uh, Now, some more comments coming to us uh, this morning. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch. Uh, Great to be getting so many messages. Ray is texting us today and he says, "Ah, would you stop it, Michael? The reason for the elderly levels of COVID dropping, COVID uh, cases dropping in the elderly is not simply because of the boosters, as you claim. It is a factor, he says, but as Mary Fabier has said twice this week on national radio, the booster is a slight help. But the main reason those numbers are so good now is because the same elderly are aggressively cocooning. The vast majority are not in the firing line. I'm not anti-vax, I'm pro-vax, but please stop exaggerating for the sake of it. Uh, I think uh, you make a very good point, Ray, uh, but the point that I was making earlier on was one that was made uh, by the Neffet team uh, at the press conference during the week and they say that there is a correlation between the drop in numbers and the boosters and they expect that to follow with the other age groups as they get the boosters as well but I I think uh, if you are cocooning uh, well then you're not in the line of fire as you put it and that is a a very valid point and I think it is one that Mary Fabier uh, who's uh, the advisor to uh, the GPs uh, the GPs advisor to Neffet has been making uh, as well Uh, Somebody else saying, what's the difference in people working from home and children still having to go to school? I I don't understand it. Yeah, it is hard to understand. There's uh, parts of the advice that are hard to understand at the moment. But I I think uh, the uh, feeling on it is that it's very important to keep children in school uh, for their well-being uh, and that if you can work from home, well, then you can work from home. So do work from home so that you uh, protect yourself and others. I I think that's... uh, Maybe a simplistic way of explaining it, uh, but that's uh, the way I understand it. But thank you to everybody who has been in touch with us so far. 
I don't know if you've ever heard of Friedrich's ataxia. It's a rare genetic disease that causes difficulty walking, a loss of sensation in the arms and legs and impaired speech. Kiefer McNamee is from Kildalki in County Meath and she's a wheelchair user who has been living with Friedrich Ataxia for some time. Kiva is 40 years of age and she had been living independently up to very recently. But that changed nine weeks ago when Kiva caught COVID. I spoke to Kiva yesterday. I'm 40 years of age. I live in Kildalki. I live independently um, I got COVID in early September I was hospitalised in Our Ladies in Heaven and I was better within a week and obviously I couldn't return home because I had no care and then they offered me respite and I wasn't happy with it and they offered me a few places and I said no I don't want to go I want to go home and then they came back to me again and they said they had a place in care choice would I go to it so I had really no option, but I had to go to her choice because I had nobody at home to care for me. Um, I'm in her choice four weeks now and still waiting onward from the HSA of having carers in my house. Well, I'm sure. I mean, you really shouldn't be in a nursing home at 40 years of age, especially when you consider that you'd been living independently up to so recently. Are you in constant contact with the HSE about this? Um, Every time I email or, well, I obviously email them, um, they're telling me they have new carers, um, low capacity in all agencies. They're trying really hard to get carers and they will get back to me. And I'm hearing this for the last six months. It's not only today. I'm hearing it six months. Six months? My God, you've been waiting all that time and you need help, obviously. I need help, yeah. I can't go home without um, carers for a few hours a day. It really must be very frustrating for you, Kifa, because you're a young person, 40 years of age. Uh, you're in a, a nursing home. You don't need nursing home care. You can live independently. You've been living independently up to very recently. And all you need is a few hours help a week. And you've been approved a home care package. Well, I have to say, I'd rather be at home I know the nursing home and the staff is lovely in it, but it's just not an ideal situation for me to be in as I am an independent girl and I'm very determined to get home. Why would you like to be at home? Um, Because I'm able to do a lot of things. Um, I can go down to the shop 
I can just basically being at home and being able to do things that I'm able to do here in the nursing home is like so di- so different being at a- in the nursing home is like you've nothing really to do. Not to look forward to as if I was at home I would plan each day as to what I was going to do and what I'm able to do. It mustn't feel very fair to you. Yeah, I think it's very unfair. Like I was like I had no choice but I had to go and that was it. Like the HSC said there's no carers so it was like I was pushed to go to my nursing home. Mm, I'm sure. It's a, a long time. You've been there for four weeks. Uh, how concerned are you uh, about the future? How worried are you about how long you might end up being there for? My work fear is being in a nursing home permanently. Do you think that might happen? I hope it doesn't happen to me because if it does, I don't know what I do. And if somebody listening to us today, Kifa, can help you in any way, what would you like them to do for you? I just need to get out to the nursing home and get carers to look after um, not only me, but I know a lot of other people that are sort of carers. Like it is nationwide. It's not only me that's affected, it's other people as well. Uh, very capable young woman, I think you'll agree. Kifa McNamee, just 40 years of age and living, it seems very unnecessarily in a nursing home this morning. And we'll hear more about Kifa's story in just a few minutes. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Kiefer's story really is a dreadful story. Kiefer McNamee, 40 years of age, in a nursing home this morning. Uh, because despite being approved a home care package, there aren't the carers uh, to provide uh, that care in her home for her. Patrick Hobine is uh, the founder and leader of AIN2, TD for Mead West, and he's been working with Kiva on uh, this situation. A very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, it, it's a terrible situation, but it's not just a terrible situation. It doesn't really make much sense, does it? No, it doesn't. And I want to pay tribute to Kifa for the campaign that she has, has fought here uh, for herself and other people in her circumstances. And I'd also like to, to pay tribute to Louise Walsh, who raised this uh, in the media as well as, as a journalist. Um, it, it, it does not make sense. It's, first of all, it's absolutely wrong that any 40-year-old would be institutionalised by this state. Um, as a citizen of a republic, you know, uh, people should be able to live their lives uh, independently um, and you know this is happening for a number of reasons and it's interesting that the ombudsman uh, Peter Tyndall uh, wrote a report to say that there were a, a significant number of people in Kiefer's, uh situation around the country and I know of other people who uh, have been young people mm. but who have been literally stranded in nursing homes um, unable to uh, find other living arrangements for themselves because of what's happening with the state. Um, and, it's, it, and, you know, just to hear Kifa say that she is 
very concerned that this could be a permanent situation, you know, is is quite chilling for anybody um, to have to uh, face that potential uh, in this country, and it needs to change. So we've done a good bit of work, obviously, for Kifa, trying to see can we get uh, the necessary home care packages for her. Um, they're, they're not available, and there's, a, there's two reasons why they're not available. First of all, the HSE actually has staff that it could assign to Kifa and to others who would be able to allow for those people to live independently. They're not doing that because the, uh, the wage that those HSE staff are on is outside of the budget that the HSE and the government have assigned uh, to this. Um, so th- right now, we know of an individual who could actually give uh, Kifa the independence that she's entitled to. Just the explain that, if you were, sorry, just explain, uh, what is that? Is, that? is it that there are agency staff available? Yeah, so the government's right. policy is this, is, is to do this through particular agencies. Uh, and, you know, people will be well aware of the agencies. They're advertised regularly mm-hmm. uh, on, on radio. And, and they do good work, and, you know, many good people are, are working for them. But the, 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 the government have assigned a certain hourly wage rate for this role. And some and agency they, rates are, are cheaper than others, is it? Yeah, well, the, the HSC staff get paid more than the agency workers, and therefore the HSC and the government oh. won't allow those HSC staff work directly in this role because it, it would be out of their, outside of the government's designed budget. Okay, so and they if they are available... For lower wages. If they uh, are available, but they're too expensive, what are they doing now? Well, th- those people are working in different roles within the HSC uh, currently. But the, and the other aspect to this is the reason why the agencies themselves are finding it very difficult to recruit is because the government won't pay staff the right wage to do the work. Um, and uh, therefore, they have real difficulty in, in finding staff to do this work. And this is, you know, I always say that you, you can judge the, the decency of a country by uh, how it treats older people, how it treats younger people, and how it treats people with disabilities. But you've lost me altogether. I mean, you're saying that, uh, basically what you're saying is, is that the government is saying it's too expensive to provide a home care package for Kiva. How much does a nursing home cost? Well, absolutely. This is like, <laughs> Michael, you're long enough to know that this country is riddled with false economies anyways. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. there's like a nursing home um, package is in itself very, very expensive. Um, in many ways, it's, it should be better valued to the state on a purely economic basis to be able to care for a person in their home setting. Mm. Um, and, you know, for most people who don't need 24-hour care, uh, it is definitely uh, much cheaper to do that. Well, to provide um, 15 hours a week or 20 hours a week, uh, which I think would be close to the maximum, uh, would be far less than the cost of a, less, a nursing home. Far less. But yet the government uh, have a, a, a wage rate which is extremely low, just marginally uh, above uh, the minimum wage in which it pays mm. for uh, staff but to deliver be, this service. But you'd be talking about hundreds a week rather than thousands a week. Exactly. And, and, and just one other final point on this. We, we did, we, the HSE did admit to us that currently they're not actually recruiting in this region for staff to do this work anyways. So there's no active recruitment campaign happening at this moment to be able to facilitate the needs of Kifa and other citizens in this scenario. Why aren't it's, they? It's doubly frustrating. Um, again, it's got to do with budgets. It's got to do with the priorities of this government uh, in relation to delivering services to people who need them. The, the government dressed themselves up in the clothes of progress and of equality and of decency. And yet when you look at the, the, the cold face of the government's actions, people who are most in need uh, in this country are still 
uh, being denied services because of these types of budgets. Uh, and as you say, these are false economy budgets because it, it actually, it, it, they're robbing Peter to pay Paul. They're, they're paying higher in nursing homes than they would to allow for the freedom and independence of a citizen living uh, at home in which they should be. So mm-hmm. we are calling for the government to, first of all, provide um, a service for Kifa in her time of need now, but also to make sure that we pay staff properly who are working for these agencies so that those agencies can, can recruit and that there is an active recruitment campaign happening uh, in this, in, in this uh, um, uh, country. We know plenty of older people uh, who are in similar situations uh, who are actually stuck in hospital uh, at the moment who can't get home due to the fact that there isn't uh, home care packages. And yet hospital places are at a premium and yeah, people and, uh, are on trolleys. And there's older people who can't get into nursing homes. Absolutely. And, and, and here we are, like, you know, w- w- because of young people uh, in nursing homes, mm. I'm getting calls to my office of people who are, or older people, who are, some of them are who are at the end of life, who are f- struggling still to find nursing home places. Mm. Uh, and uh, some of them are in hospital because they can't get from the hospital to the nursing home. Uh, and then if they're in a hospital bed, that means that somebody is down in the emergency department uh, and they've been admitted and they need hospital care, but there isn't a bed available for them. Absolutely. So uh, there is a domino effect um, by, by this lack of service. If the government prevents Kifa and other people from getting the independence and home living that they're entitled to, and there is a chain reaction through the health service uh, that affects a number of individuals uh, as well in their lack of ability to get the health services that they need. Um, and, you know, mm. this, this reminds me, to be honest, like we're, we're great in this country at looking at institutional uh, difficulties and damages and abuses that happened in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And absolutely, we were right to research that and to make sure that we shine a light into it and and, and hold people to account who did wrong back then. But here we are in our own time. And, you know, we know of, we have institutions and we we are forcing young people to to live in these institutions against their will uh, in a a, a semi-permanent fashion with potentially no light at the end of the tunnel for these individuals. Is there any hope for Kiefer this morning? Because Kiefer is listening to us now and Kiefer, as we've been hearing for the last while, is just 40 years of age. Uh, she's a very capable person who needs a bit of help uh, and is uh, somebody who has been approved for that help, but that help just isn't uh, uh, available to her. So she's in a nursing home and all she wants to do is go home to her own house, to her own things, to be able to go down to the shops, uh, meet the people she knows, speak with her neighbours and that sort of thing and have a bit of stimulation in her life rather than a nursing home. Is there any hope for her? Well, in this case, thankfully, there's, there does seem to be some light at the end of the tunnel. My office and Una, who works in my office in Trim, um, because of the work that she has done and we have done and raising this, um, has managed to draw the attention of uh, different individuals within the sector. They have been in contact with us and we're trying to negotiate with them and the HSE to put uh, a package in place for this. But what really angers me in this is, you know, we go to the media in these cases as a last resort because, you know, there are dozens of people that we represent and, you know, we push with the minister's office and we push with the HSE who don't get, um, you know, don't, don't get what they're entitled to. And many people don't want to go public. You know, it takes a certain type of courage and bravery to tell your story on live radio um, um, 
to to express exactly what your experience is and, and many people for them that's that's very difficult to do but sometimes we actually have to go to the media to actually get things done and when we do the HSC and the government jump into action. It shouldn't be the case that you know it is the. It's when a media spotlight is um, uh, put on an individual case that they get their entitlements. Uh, it shouldn't be the case. I, I always say that you know the, the, the most powerful minister in this country is Minister Joe Duffy, and you know, and I don't mean Joe himself, but what I mean is that if 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 we are at a last resort in trying to help a person, what we can all we can do is bring it to the media's attention. The media shine a light on it, and it embarrasses the establishment uh, in this country into doing something for those people. But that's not the way a country should work. That's not the way a system should work. It should be transparent and it should be equal to all. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed. Peter Tobin, uh, leader and founder of AIM2 and a TD for Me The West. Now, thanks uh, to Francie. Francie has been sending us uh, a text uh, through WhatsApp saying uh, that uh, those who say that it should be mandatory to have COVID certs to gain access to places should have their heads read, how would that even be workable? Thank you indeed. Uh, I'm not sure what the problem would be if uh, you can uh, ask people for a COVID cert going into a, a bar or a club. Why couldn't you do it going into a hairdresser's or a chipper? Um, Mary says uh, that what happened to Grace was absolutely horrific. Uh, it really was horrific. There's no doubt about that. And I, I thought, Mary, and I think uh, you probably agree, uh, reading through your message, that uh, John McGuinness's uh, contribution in the doll yesterday was particularly powerful and really struck home with a lot of us uh, listening to it uh, this morning. Uh, Mary says believe it or not though there are people who would say sure that's how things were in those days instead of talking about how frightening it is that these terrible men and women harmed that poor vulnerable girl so badly. Thanks Mary. Uh, We're not talking uh, about uh, something that's uh, in uh, the ancient past here with Grace. Uh, This is a very recent Uh, story but uh, thank you indeed uh, for your call to the programme or your WhatsApp message to the programme uh, for that matter. Uh, that has to be the final word on the programme today. Our time has run out on us once again, uh, not just for today, but uh, indeed uh, for this week. Uh, we'll be back with our next programme on Monday morning and God willing we'll see you then at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.